And uh, this guy came running out of a building and a scout sniper took a shot at him and it, and it took him down. That was the first time I'd ever seen anybody get killed. You didn't want to be known as the crazy dude or that, you know, he's got, you know, he's got nightmares or whatever. You know, you just didn't want to be labeled that. So you just kept it to yourself. All right. What's up, Paul? What's going on? Not much, man. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Um, all right, man. Let's just start it off by, uh, let's talk about... Um, why don't you tell me where you're from and uh, what your upbringing was like? All right. Uh, grew up in a little town called Lancaster, California, middle of the Mojave Desert, about 120 degrees in the summer out there. Uh, parents still, mar uh, still married. I got a brother, older brother, younger sister. Uh, middle class family. Wasn't super rich, wasn't poor. Well, I mean, we never struggled, but my pops worked three jobs uh, to keep us afloat. And my mom was a housewife until she turned 40. And then she went back to school to become an RN. Wow. Um, my dad was an authoritarian. He was never in the military. But that dude, if you left the house without making your bed or if something was on the floor, say a sock, stand by from when you got home. So I kind of had that already ingrained in me growing up. Um, attention to detail was real big with him. And again, he was never in the military. That was just his personality. Uh, so, uh, our childhood was good. Uh, we never had any issues. Fast forward going into high school, um, had no clue what I wanted to do. Uh, just like any other person in high school, any other kid, uh, senior year came, graduation came quick. I was like, you know what? I ain't doing nothing good. Probably just go join the military. So, uh, previous to that, my brother, who's three years older than me, um, went through the devil pups program. This was back in the early 90s. And he was kind of explaining to me what happened. So that's kind of what got my interest into the military. Um, he tried to get into the Marine Corps. He couldn't. He has a problem with his leg. And they disqualified him. Um, but anyway, so come, uh, I graduated in 1999. Um, kind of messed around for about a year. Uh, June 4th, uh, 2000, boot camp, MCRD. So what inspired you to join the Marine Corps? Uh just the stories I heard from my brother. Um, it was the toughest, hardest boot camp. Uh, they would come down on you the hardest. It would, you know, so that's what drew me towards it, trying to do something that was difficult. Uh, I'd never really experienced anything in my life up until Marine Corps boot camp that was like boot camp, other than living at home with your parents, but you know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, so... Um, and so you went into boot camp. you said, what year was it? Uh, 2000. So funny story is the recruiter, I, I went in there. I tell this dude, I don't want to go in the infantry. My dad was like, you go in the Marine Corps. Just don't do the infantry. So like everybody that goes in there, I wanted to be an MP. So I took the ASVAB, go back to the recruiter. Oh man, no, nah, no, nah, you didn't, you didn't score high enough for MP. I said, all right, well, I, what, what else do you got? I don't want, I do not want to go in the infantry. He goes, check out this video. Shows me this high speed video. Of these dudes fast roping out of this helicopter. He's like, Hey, that's like the SWAT team of the Marine Corps. So sign me up. So fast forward into boot camp, right at the end of Marine Corps boot camp, they separate you between infantry and support. Well, I'm standing like a dummy on the support side and they're calling me on the infantry side. And I, I'm like, Hey, uh, drill instructor, you know, I'm, I'm not in the infantry. He's like, I'm security forces. They're like, no, dummy, you're infantry. And that was it. 
so do the year and a half billet there at Banger uh, with the security force company. How, uh, uh, what was that like? What was life like as a secure in a security force battalion? Uh, in hindsight, we had it good over there uh, compared to the fleet Marine force. So what I mean by that is we had a, we had a real set schedule over there, you know, uh, Monday through Friday. If you weren't in the wire doing the job that they do over there, you were just doing garrison type stuff throughout the week. And then you had the weekends off. So it was in hindsight, it was, it was probably one of the better um, places that you could be in the Marine Corps. Now, uh, Banger, Banger, Washington, I understand that's a Navy base, right? Correct. Mm. Yeah. Did that play a part in having a good life there? Uh, I would imagine so. Uh, everything, you know, on a Navy base is different. They, it's, in my opinion, ran differently than the Marine Corps bases. Yeah. Um, especially if you've been on an Army base or, or even an Air Force base. Right. So, yeah, definitely uh, played into it. Difference in chow halls? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Went to an Air Force chow hall one time. They had a waiter. <laughs> I, I was I was tripping out. Right, right. So uh, um, you did your time at your B billet and security forces, and um, where'd you go from there? Uh, so this was November two thousand two. Um, got orders Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and I'm from Southern California. I liter- literally live two hours away from Camp Pendleton. So why they wouldn't send me there? They sent me to North Carolina, which was cool. I'd never really been on the East Coast. Um, I ended up at 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, which is uh, obviously East Coast 2nd Marine Division, <clears throat> as a fleet uh, Marine Infantry Unit. And so come December 2002, um, that's when we were starting to ramp up the first initial invasion into Iraq. Um, so I had only been in the fleet for two months. Um, no workups, nothing. Uh, come January, uh, we were, we're on a ship floating to Kuwait getting ready for the Iraq invasion. So, and that was due to uh, 9-11, right? Um, so, or no, no, not, uh, 9-11. Well, was, you were, you we were, were still at Banger. And, you and, were at Banger at 9-11, so let's back right. up a little bit. And um, what happened, uh, you know, obviously we know what happened during 9-11, but um, did you guys do anything special on base, like, you were at Banger, Washington Security Force for 9-11. What, what happened? Did you guys, um, what kind of stuff were you guys hearing? Um, uh, what was the word? What was it like after 9-11 or while that was happening? Well, you know, I mean, 9-11 changed the course of the Marine Corps for me personally. And I think a lot of us that were all in there together because we're, we were all pre-9-11. So we didn't expect any wars, anything to happen. We're sitting there. I remember. I remember the day it happened. Obviously, nine eleven. But uh, we were in the wire um, portion of the base, doing the duties over there, and <clears throat> they had it on the TV. I remember. I don't remember who it was. One of the gunnies or somebody was like, "Hey, there's a, been a terrorist attack." So just like any natural base, they kind of ramped the, ramped it up security wise, and I think it stayed like that for quite some time. But uh, I I never went to Afghanistan for 9-11. I, I went a few years later. Okay. Um, all right. So from Bangor, Washington, you get stationed in North Carolina. Correct. Camp, Camp Lejeune. Yeah. Uh, and you're from the West Coast. Right. Well, they, they'd call that getting the big green weenie, huh? <laughs> when literally I could drive home two hours, you know, now I got to fly six hours. Right. But anyway, that's the way, that's the Marine Corps way. 
So oh. um, what was life like uh, in, in, in the Fleet Marine Force? Com- you know, what was it like when you showed up at your new unit? You know, uh, if you're not straight infantry and you show up in an infantry unit, they kind of treat you differently to begin with. They want to know, they kind of trying to figure out who you are because security forces is kind of looked at as a support. They don't really look at you as infantry yet until you hit the infantry fleet infantry. Um, once I kind of figure out, once I got there, I kind of figured out, I knew what was going on. I didn't have any issues integrating with the actual infantry dudes. So no, no issues. Once they found out you were squared away. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. Uh, so, uh, what'd you get into when you got there? What, what, what was it like, um, being in the fleet? Um, being in the fleet, you know, it's crazy because I was only there two months before, uh, being on a ship to Iraq. So I didn't really get the exposure that some of those guys had been in there for years. Um, but it, it, same mentality, even security forces, same mentality in the fleet, you know, same kind of, same kind of camaraderie. So when you jumped into the fleet, um, did you jump into like, maybe it sounds like maybe the end of a workup? They hadn't even done any workup. Um, no, no workup was done because the actual word hadn't been sent yet that we were going to go into or invade Iraq. So I was actually, it was supposed to go to Bridgeport. We were getting ready to do the cold weather training in Bridgeport, which I was desperately hoping didn't happen and it didn't. So instead of Bridgeport where we were going to do the mountain cold weather training, um, they ended up saying, Hey, get pack all your stuff. We're getting ready to go to Kuwait. Mm. So come to uh, January, 2003, jump on a ship, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. It was about a two week sail, um, to Kuwait from the East coast. And we went through a bunch of different areas, the black sea, Straits of Vermouth, all kinds of stuff. Um, ship life was pretty cool. Um, it's just like a big floating city. Yeah. Talk know? to me about that. How was it? Uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, <laughs> coming from a B billet where you're on land and we don't deploy and now you're on a, on a floating ship and now you're integrated with Navy personnel and Marine Corps personnel. This is a little bit different. You know, in the, in the Marine Corps infantry, you don't encounter female Marines very often. Maybe, maybe you might see them at the chow hall, but when they throw you on a Navy ship, Obviously, there's lots of women in the Navy, so it's just a different atmosphere. It's a little, little bit different than being in the fleet, Marine Corps. What's a typical day like on a ship? Um, we would get up uh, five. They would give us two hours to PT. Um, big full gym on the, the ship. You can go up top, run on the flight deck. Um, PT meaning? Physical training, right on. running, uh, exercising. They kind of kind of let us pick and choose what we wanted to do. You know, when you're back in the garrison bases they they set you up with a pt program physical training program but when on the ship because there's people doing different shifts and stuff you kind of pick and choose what you wanted to do as long as you got two hours of physical exercise in they would let you do that and then by eight o'clock uh you had to have been ready showered eaten and ready for whatever the staff ncos had for your classes whatever whatever they had designated for that day right just Making shit up to do. That's it. Just huh? trying to keep you keep you busy. Uh, the Marine Corps are on a on a ship. They're called the birthing areas, right? So that's where people sleep, and it's three bunks high. So you got a Marine, one in the middle, and one on the top, and then the ship's got a row. So you got like ten rows on each side. So whatever that is, three times ten is thirty. So sixty people in one birthing area. 
all just packed in there. All your gear's packed in there. With all their shit. That's it. And then the only thing, courtesy, the only thing you got between you and then the guy, you know, 10 feet away from you is a little curtain that you slide. That's your courtesy curtain. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was like showering like and all that? Um, the showers are, are, they were single cell, single, single showers. Yeah. Okay. Per privacy showers and stuff. Uh, what was the food like on ship? Um, food was um, not bad. It's the same set schedule. It's pretty pretty close to the Marine Corps. You already knew ahead of time what they were going to serve. It was always like Taco Tuesday. Uh, pizza was on Wednesdays or Italian food. And then Friday was always surf and turf. Steak and lobster. <laughs> you know, it, it was always systematic. So um, this was, you said, January 2003, right? Yes. Um, has there been any talks about uh, going into combat at this point? No, we still had no clue as lower level enlisted guys. I had no clue what we were doing. I just knew we were going to Kuwait. They didn't give us a mission. Um, but on the way over there, we did lots of classes on um, how to identify uh, T-32 uh, tanks or Iraqi troops, uh, the different kind of troops that were over in Iraq. So we kind of had an idea something big was coming, but they just never physically told us. Uh, do you remember when you did get the word? Yeah, so we uh, took about two weeks to get to Kuwait. Um, they flew us off the ship on the land. Uh, I don't remember the camp I was in, but it was a camp somewhere near Kuwait City because I remember um, I jumped on a bus and went into Kuwait City. I don't remember, even remember what we did. We went to go pick up something or somebody. There's a group of Marines on a bus. Um, right. But yeah, we sat in the desert for March, two, almost two months. Doing endless patrols. In Kuwait? In Kuwait. Oh, wow. Super hot, no vegetation. Uh, just patrols, fire team rushes, tactics. And uh, that was pretty much it. Um, and then from Kuwait, where'd you go from Kuwait? So right before the invasion, which uh, I think was March 19th, like around the 17th, we started packing up and got on seven um, ton pickup trucks. And started making our way towards the border of Iraq. So at, at that point, uh, it, it was Bush. President Bush had already said, we're getting ready to invade Iraq. And so we all loaded up. Um, it took us two days to get to the border from where we were at. And I sat there. I remember March 18th, almost into March 19th, midnight, was sitting on the border. And we didn't know what to expect. There was, no, there was nothing there. There was nobody there. There's no fence. There's nothing indicating that it's a border. But right. we were static on a line. And I remember just watching missiles being fired off of a truck cruise missiles whatever they were scud missiles and it was just like a big light show wow was uh, cool. what was going through your mind when you were seeing all that man didn't know what to expect it was nighttime too so in my mind you know bad guy is 10 feet away in all reality there was nobody even there for miles right come to find out the next day how old were you at this time um so i turned 19 in boot camp uh, which was 2000. So uh, I was about 20. It should have been 21, close to 21. Okay. Young. Yeah. Um, and so how, how did you guys, uh, you said you jumped into seven tons and, and entered Iraq? Yeah. So um, I was part of Task Force Tarawa, which was made up of three uh, battalions. You had 1st Marine, 1st first Marine, 2nd Division, 2nd Marine, 8th Division, and 3rd Marine, 2nd Division. So there was three of us in a convoy 
And um, we first went to uh, secure some airport. Um, I don't remember what town it was, um, but that was the first mission. That was actual, when we crossed into the border, that was what we were told. Hey, you're going to go secure an airfield. So it took us like an hour or two hours to drive there. And we get to the airfield and there's nothing there. Secured it and that was it. <laughs> that was it, huh? That was it, yep. Um, and then what'd you do after that? Uh, so um, part of Task Force Tarawa was um, army units too. So you had the 3rd ID which was the main army force that pushed in um, with the Marines. But it, uh, ironically, I think it was the five, 504 uh, maintenance company where Jessica Lynch, the female private who was captured. So she was in the same convoy with us, just ahead of us. It was her maintenance company. Then it went the Marines. So my unit was in the back. So, that, so that's when uh, the whole Nazaria story came down which was the battle for Nazaria. That was the major conflict that I was a part of. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, anybody that followed the war back then, uh, Jessica Lynch was a private in the army. And um, from what I understand, and uh, this is just what I was told, I never confirmed it, but they had missed or they were supposed to go around the city, but instead tried to take a shortcut through the city. And the word was that that city was friendly and obviously it turned out not to be her unit was ambushed and a lot of them were killed. And I believe there were seven of them captured, including her. So, um, we were literally, uh, I was literally up the street when all that happened, but we had no clue. We had no clue that was going on. So, uh, just like in a flash, our mission changed to now was securing two key bridges in the city of Nazaria as, as well as trying to, um, help locate any of the missing army personnel. Wow. Pretty cool. Um, so, uh, did you, uh, did you see any enemy at this point? Um, any, have you guys received any contact or, um, up to that point, me personally, or my unit, we never sought any contact until we entered the city of Nazaria. Okay. Um, and so the first unit to push in was 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines. They went through in what is known today as Ambush Alley. And um, a bunch of their AVs got blown up. They had gotten ambushed by a pretty large Bath Party uh, Iraqi unit. And by the time our ass into the convoy caught up, um, we were now integrated with 2-8. One, so 1, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines was on one side of the bridge and they were cut off. Our, our mission was to try to go help them, but we couldn't get there because of the combat that was going on between the two bridges. So that was the first time that my unit received contact. And I still have a picture of the school where it all started. <laughs> it was a school that uh, the Bath Party had kicked everybody out and bunkered to make it look like it was a school, but they were actually inside the building. Mm. And how'd that go down? Um, that was at least two weeks of pretty intense fighting in the city. Um, I don't recall my unit ever personally finding any of the army personnel that were captured. Um, I do remember going by all their blown up Humvees and stuff. And uh, we had gotten word that one of them was captured and still alive. And that was Jessica Lynch. So um, from what I understand, again, I don't, I don't can't, uh, this is what I was told, but somebody had, 
uh, given information to the Americans where she was being held. And it was in a hospital. And just so happens my unit was literally like two blocks away from the hospital. So uh, information had, had gotten to Marine Corps headquarters or whatever, whoever, to that she was being held up in the hospital. And our unit was going to do some mock attack so that special operations could go in and rescue her. So that was, so you're ramping it up, like go a couple weeks ahead. Um, our unit does a mock attack on some building, I'm watching everything through my MVGs, uh, helicopters, they rescue her. We're monitoring the net, which is the radio. And, uh, I remember them saying, Hey, we found her. If we found her, she's alive. And that was like a big boost for everybody in the Marine Corps, or at least in my unit, you know, they had actually found her still alive. So it was pretty cool. Has she, uh, was she hurt or do you know any, how her condition was or anything like that? No. Um, I, I obviously later on, she wrote a book and she has a Facebook or a Instagram page and stuff. So I read her book and kind of the story that she went through, but, um, when it was all going down, we had no clue what kind of condition she was in. So after that was settled, uh, what happened next? So I think we, we were there for maybe another week. Uh, things calmed down. We had en ended up securing that city and started pushing a little bit further towards Baghdad. I never went into Baghdad. That was the first Marine division, I believe, but we went pretty close. We went to Diwania, um, to Crete, a few, few other spots. And by the time we had hit, uh, those last two cities, first Marine division had already taken Baghdad. So the, the war was already realistically ramping down. So post Nazaria, I had zero contact with no, no, I didn't even see any troops. Right. We saw a lot of blown up tanks along the way, stuff like that. But beyond that, I never had any contact ever again. Um, did you, uh, did you see any, you know, do you have any vivid memories of, uh, I don't know, did you see, you know, bodies on the side of the road or, uh, you know, just describe what the uh, environment was like, you know, did you see life for uh, Iraqis over there? Like the kids, the, you know, how, how are they living? Uh, it's definitely a third world country. No paved streets, HUD, uh, mud huts, no sewer systems. We were very uh, interactive with the kids. They liked us. They always asked us for candy, food. We would always play with them. Um, uh, the, the culture over there, obviously we didn't, don't talk to the women. It's disrespectful to the men. Uh, but as, as far as uh, the civilians, they were pretty receptive to us being there. I never had any issues with any civilians. A lot of them would come up and try to sell us products, Cokes, candy, whatever. They're just trying to make money. DVDs. DVDs was a big one <laughs> back then, right? In 2003. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you could, you could buy five DVDs for five bucks or whatever it was. Right. Um, but, what did you, uh, what was life like being in combat? Like, you know, talk about how like, uh, you know, sleeping, you know, what'd you eat? Um, you know, did you have, you know, did you change clothes every day? Did you get to shower? Like, what was all that like? Uh, it was pretty miserable. Um, so every time your convoy would stop, you'd have to dig a fighting hole, right? So it's got to be the length of your body and at least four feet deep. You at least try to, and that was, that's what you would sleep in. And obviously you'd have to have some kind of fire watch or guard. So you'd have to rotate guard duty, watching, trying to get some sleep in. And even if it was your turn to sleep, you're not really sleeping, you know? So it's pretty miserable. I was, I was pretty tired. I'm not going to lie for the entire deployment there. 
the stress of not sleeping, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what's around the corner was pretty, uh, pretty intense. I mean, I can imagine just, you know, knowing that there's people out there that want you dead. <laughs> it's pretty difficult to get a good night's rest, right? Yeah. And, um, we had a lot of support though. Um, a lot of air, air support, um, Cobras, Apaches. I remember, uh, first time I ever saw uh, an Iraqi soldier got, sh- uh, get shot was one of our scout snipers. And, uh, this guy came running out of a building and, uh, scout sniper took a shot at him and, and it took him down. That was the first time I'd ever seen anybody get killed. Wow. And he, he was still alive and our medics were actually trying to help him, but he passed away. And I was like, wow. So it, it just kind of like hit me at that moment. Like, like this is really happening. <laughs> this yeah. is where we're at. Yeah. That's true. And, and as a kid, I never, other than some stupid Rambo movie, right? You never really, I never really saw anybody get killed or shot. So it's pretty surreal. Um, but even along the way, there was a lot of, there was dead bodies on the road. There was, there was all kinds of stuff. Yeah. 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 Yep. Uh, from just people getting blown up. Was it Iraqis? Was it American, American? Um, I never saw any, um, dead, dead Americans. It was more, uh, enemies combatants that were still dead on the road that somebody hadn't removed or maybe their, uh, vehicle had flipped over and they were still dead inside the vehicle. Okay. Um, how long were you there in Iraq? Um, so, uh, we crossed over March 19th and I want to say by June, mid June, we were already driving back to the border of Kuwait. So three months, maybe. Right. I mean, that was a quick war. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, once, once we knew the war was over, they were like, hey, pack your stuff up. We got back on the trucks, drove the two, day, two or three day cruise back to Kuwait. Um, we stayed at Kuwait for quite some time. I don't remember how long it was, like a couple days. Um, jumped on some, uh, some of them hovercrafts back out to the Navy ship, and that was it. Boom. And uh, once you got back, um, you know, what happened when you got back? So uh, from Kuwait, they, they stopped in Portugal. Gave us four days of liberty, which in the Marine Corps terms is you got four days of vacation, right? In a right. foreign country after you had just been in war and it was an absolute shit show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, picture a bunch of 21 year old kids who'd just been through combat and now you're set free in a country where it's only 19 to drink. So <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, vividly, I remember uh, the shore police snatching up my buddy and me being too uh, intoxicated, taking us back to the ship. And then uh, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, you guys are just headed home back to the uh, Camp Lejeune. Is that right? Yeah. So that's it. We, we uh, instead of sailing to Norfolk, we sailed straight to Camp Lejeune. And um, I don't remember how we got back on the shore, but fast forward. So now post Iraq, um, uh, back to garrison life, right? So now you got to set schedule back to the monotony of Monday through Friday, whatever, nine to five. Um, one of our gunnies comes up and he goes, Hey, so it was, it was late June now by this time, almost July. Um, they need volunteers for Afghanistan. Anybody want to go? So July, 2003, I still had another year in the Marine Corps. My ES date was June of 2004. So I was like, I can either sit in garrison for a year or I can go 
to Afghanistan, which I'll never go to in my entire life. So what ended up happening is I switched from 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. I jumped over to 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, so 2-8, and uh, started ramping up on a deployment to Afghanistan with them. So literally, like, I had a three- or four-month break between Iraq and Afghanistan before my second deployment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so you jumped into a workup? Is- uh, yeah, we didn't really do it. I mean, e- even for that, there was no real workup. Um, I integrated into a new unit. I had to meet every. Well, I had to meet all the, all the new people from that unit, but a lot of people from my unit came. So that, it was guys I was in Iraq with. So I knew them, too. So we already had kind of had that bond coming into that new unit, even though we didn't know them. We all knew each other and had all been to, into Iraq together. Right. Well, yeah, uh, to uh, November 2003, um, we didn't sail this time. We flew to Afghanistan. So we flew out of Cherry Point, North Carolina, uh, to Frankfurt, Germany. It was about a six-hour flight on a commercial plane. And that was a mess, too, because you've got civilian female flight attendants mm-hmm. with a group of you know 150 male Marines. <laughs> yeah, so... There was a lot of nonsense going on. Um, so from Frankfurt, we flew to, I want to say Turkey, from Turkey to Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan's right on the border near China and Russia, I believe, somewhere in there. Um, and we stayed there for three days. I don't know what we were doing there. I don't remember. It was just on this little military base in the middle of nowhere. Then we ended up taking a C-130 from Kyrgyzstan into Afghanistan, which was like a couple-hour flight. Okay. And uh, what was it like when you got to Afghanistan? Um, again, just the unknown. Um, we flew into Bagram Air Base, which is the main air base there. Um, all the coalition forces were there. Marines, Air Force, um, Navy. I mean, there was the Korean Rock Marines. There was um, Israeli uh, SAF. I mean, there was all kinds of people there. German German uh, troops. It was just a big coalition base. So um, we got there on the tarmac or runway and got on some buses and situated us into the Marine Corps camp. Um, I don't remember what it was called, Camp Bulldog or something. And at that point, we still hadn't had any mission yet at all. So we're just kind of acclimating to the elevation changes and uh, the weather over there in Afghanistan. Uh, do you recall your first mission? Yeah, so um, I was with 2-8, and they broke us up into three different missions. So for two months, you were either... Pulling guard duty around Bagram Air Base, you were either um, on a QRF or a quick reaction force for President Karzai at the time was the president of Afghanistan. So you so you would sit in the tarmac and if anything went down at the presidential palace, they would spin up the QRF and we were a quick reaction force for to back him up and his Afghanistan fighters. Um, or you went to Asadabad, which was on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. So that's. My unit got sent straight to Asadabad, Afghanistan. Okay. And what was your guys' mission? Uh, so over there, uh, so that that was a about a forty-five minute helicopter flight from Bagram to Afghan or uh, Asadabad. There was a special forces outpost there, and um, our mission as the Marines, we relieved the Tenth Mountain Division, which was Army. They had been worn thin um, from Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, our Marine unit relieved them doing security for the special ops base there. Mm. Um, did you get into any sticky situations while you were in Afghanistan? Um, there was a few uh, skirmishes, firefights, nothing significant. Um, 
a lot of OPs. A lot of that stuff from from when the Russians invaded Afghanistan in the 80s was still there. There's there's bunkers and stuff that we would still use that was built by the Russians. Mm-hmm. Key points on on certain mountaintops that would overlook the city of Asadabad. Um, the most significant uh, incident that I can remember, uh, I was on an OP observation post with my platoon, and um, there was a, a night hum, a, a, a group of Humvees at night, uh, Marine Corps Humvees. There were three of them doing a patrol of this little city, and as I was, we were watching, um, some dudes ambushed the convoy. Uh, two RPGs missed, luckily, and a, a bunch of small arms fired, but. We didn't react. We were too high up on the mountain to even react. We just kind of called it in what was going on. So um, being that it was a special operations base, um, those guys had direct connect to um, an AC-130 gunship. So they called one in, and I remember watching through NVGs a bunch of Taliban fighters running up a mountain wall. An AC-130 gunship was raining down on them. (laughs) It was legit. That was was probably the most significant incident that I saw there. Were you watching them drop? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can it, see it, them through your NVGs? You can see them through the NVGs because it was super dark out. And on the C-130 at night, the cone emits like a, a infrared light on the side of the mountain. So unless you're wearing NVGs, you can see exactly what it's lighting up. It was pretty gnarly. Wow. Uh, how long did you stay in Afghanistan? Um, so I got there late November of 2003, and we ended our deployment June 1st of 2004. Okay. And then how long did you uh, stay in the Marines after that? Um, you know, it's crazy. Uh, we got back to Camp Lejeune June 1st and I exited the Marine Corps June 10th. That was it. Nine days later? Nine days later. After two combat deployments back to back. I I remember that day, June 10th or June 9th, something, something like that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of weird because for four years, you're used to not being able to go anywhere. And I remember the first sergeant was like, thank you for your service, son good luck to you. And that was it. And I was like, I can go. And he goes, yeah, you're done. Wow. And that was it. <laughs> Dude, what the fuck was it like? Okay. You got two combat tours. You get back from the second one and you're out of the fucking Marine Corps in nine days. Uh, it is civilian. Where- zero um, reintegration into civilization, period. And, and so back up, back up to coming back from Iraq, I started noticing I was having some issues. Um, I used to be able to drink um, beer, drink, you know, just, just a good old time party, like the party drink. Well, I started feeling kind of weird after drinking from Iraq. And I, I was like, I don't know what this is. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I couldn't drink caffeine. I couldn't drink soda anymore. I, I, I drank a soda. I thought I was having a heart attack. I almost went to the base hospital, but being a Marine, you're stubborn, right? So you're like, screw this. Right. So, I suffered through Afghanistan legit with heart palpitations and just stuff I didn't understand. Like I couldn't explain it. I, I even went to the doc and I was like, Hey, I've, I've got like heart palpitations. They're like, Oh, you're just nervous. You know, it's combat. And so that's when I first really started noticing fast forward a few years, what post-traumatic stress was or what the symptoms of being under, you know, stress for a year in combat. It's pretty interesting thinking back. When you got out, um, where did you go back to? Um, so I got out. Uh, I drove back to California, um, lived with my parents, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. <laughs> biggest, biggest, that's the hardest part. With zero integration from the Marine Corps, not on their fault. It's just the way it laid out for me, you know. 
just what it, what did it feel like being in uh, you know just back in Lancaster at your home, right? Yeah. Uh, after you know, you know, essentially a year's worth of combat where you're hyper vigilant, hyper tense, fucking anxiety. You know, can't sleep. Out the door. <laughs> I mean, how, how, what was this like? Like that? Was it a shock? Was it a culture shock? Or you know, what was that like? Well, you know, when I got out of the Marine Corps back to civilian life, I tried to pick up right where I left off as a 19-year-old kid. Well, it doesn't work that way when you've been in that kind of environment. Um, physiologically, a lot of things changed my um, nervous system, and it's crazy because I know this now. I didn't know that back then. So drinking would give me anxiety. I never even heard the word anxiety. I was dating this girl and she goes, oh yeah, I have panic attacks and anxiety. And I was like, what is that? And she explained the symptoms and I was like, that's exactly how I feel. She's like, oh, you have anxiety now. But I never knew what that was. I never heard that growing up, like legit, never understood or never heard that word before. Right. So I didn't, uh, I, I, I kind of got back into the swing of things pretty quick, civilian life. Started trying to find a job. I went to EMT school. Finished that. Um, was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, was a security guard for a few months. And um, so my my grandpa, my dad, my brother were all L.A. County sheriffs. And I, I didn't really have any intuition of being a cop at all. But I was like, mm, what are my skill sets and what's paramilitary, right? Police, community policing. Right. So my brother was like, hey, you know, why don't you just uh, apply for the LA County Sheriff's? And that's what I did. So that was about 2005-ish, and it took about a year and a half, and uh, I was hired on in 2006. Okay. Um, so you've been a sh- deputy sheriff for how long? Um, I just hit my 15th year, so 15 plus. So um, talk to me about like, okay, it's, you know, you go into the law enforcement because it's a paramilitary type organization. Um, you know, just correct me if I'm wrong, but um, maybe you're trying to get back as close as to the military type environment um, as possible, right? Because that's where you feel comfortable. Um, you're dealing with anxiety. Um, you're likely got PTSD at this point. Have you gotten help yet at this point? No, never even seeked help because I thought it would affect my, uh, employment with the LA sheriffs. So that's why I never even like, I was just like, I'll deal with it, whatever. And I did, I dealt with it for a long time. (laughs) Just kind of ignoring it with, which is probably not the best thing, but, um, when did you eventually get some or try to get some help? Um, so I got into an incident in the sheriff's department, um, a shooting was a on duty shooting. And, um, I had, so ignoring post-traumatic stress symptoms, which could be different for anybody. For, for me, it was anxiousness and panic attacks. Right. And then I get into a shooting as a cop and everything just kind of crumbled all at once. Can you walk us through that incident? The sheriff's incident? Yeah, the sheriff's incident. Yeah, it, uh, it was a, I was on a, a, a station level narcotics team. We were serving a search warrant on a, a guy that we suspected was selling methamphetamine out of a house. Uh, long story short, uh, he attempted, he tried to kill me with two knives and I ended up having to shoot him. How did he try killing you? Uh, with some knives. He was throwing knives at me. He was throwing them at you? Yeah. Oh, shit. So it, it, was, a, it was a long drawn out process. 
what I mean is the incident was drawn out. It wasn't like we just rolled up and shot him. It, it went on for, I think, 10 minutes of trying to de-escalate this situation and it ended up in a shooting. So that's when I actually started seeking help was because I couldn't, I was just like had a meltdown. So a year of combat into roll into a being a cop and you get into a shooting, you know, just everything just imploded on me emotionally. Right. And I've never been an emotional person, right? Most Marines aren't. Right. Um, and now you're back on your own soil uh, having to put people down. Yeah. that w- And it sounds weird. And, and a lot of the other um, deputies didn't understand that. I had an issue with having to harm another American. And they're like, well, he's a bad guy. Well, yeah, you're right. He is. But still, it, coming from being in combat where you're killing a combatant trying to kill you, now you're you know, trying to police an American citizen who's trying to kill you. I don't know. Psychologically, it was just different. Yeah. Um, essentially, it's the same because either way, no matter where you're at, you got somebody trying to kill you. Right. So you're justified in doing what you did. Um, but, you know, you're overseas fighting for your country, uh, for the same people that, you know, you're you're back here trying to protect. Right. Now you got some of those people trying to hurt you and put you in danger. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny you mentioned that because, like I said, a lot of a lot of people I worked with couldn't grasp that concept. They did, they just didn't understand it, and I, it, I couldn't explain it either. So yeah, it was definitely uh, an interesting concept. I had to talk to a lot of different people and try to explain to them, you know, why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Um, have you been able to connect with other combat veterans who are also sheriff's deputies? Yeah, so. Uh, you know, uh, police agencies love veterans, uh, whether it's Marine Corps, Air Force, Army. And they like the fact that you're um, disciplined for the most part. You're used to uh, a set schedule. You're, you know, paramilitary organization where you're wearing a uniform. You've got a rank structure. And they like that. They like that military people are obedient and also independent thinkers. So there, there's tons of veterans on the Sheriff's Department. Okay. Um. And so eventually you got help, right? Was that through the Veterans Administration? or? Uh, so originally I sought help through the Sheriff's Department. Um, they have a Psychological Services Bureau, not just for veterans, but for police. Uh, police are no different than any other person. Um, alcohol problems, marriage problems, whatever. Right. And you can go talk to people. Um, so I had I'd sought um, help through the psycho- Psychological um, services Bureau back in 2011. So fast forward from 2004 to 11, that's how long I suffered before I actually told somebody how I felt. And I, I imagine the majority of the time, not really understanding what you're going through, right? No clue. No clue. I mean, when, when going into war and you, you don't have any of these symptoms and then coming out and you've got these symptoms going on, you have no clue to explain yeah, was, but it's it's that's what they're trying to do, and they knew exactly what was wrong. Um, is mental health perceived as being, you know, how's it perceived in the in the in the law enforcement community? Um, so meaning like other cops having mental health problems, uh, is it easily talked about? No, um, there's always a stigma behind that, and you know, uh, you don't. At that time, it's a little different now because mental health has become such a big issue over the last 20 years. 
Um, but back then it was a stigma that you didn't want stuck on you. You didn't want to be known as the crazy dude or that, you know, he's got, you know, he's got nightmares or whatever, you know, you just didn't want to be labeled that. So you just kept it to yourself. Yet people expect you to, um, uh, you know, go out there and get knives thrown at you, right? <laughs> uh, show up on scenes where you're dealing with dead bodies. Um, I imagine traffic accidents where you're seeing people missing limbs, um, you know, conducting rape investigations, uh, you know, and child molestation investigations. I mean, I mean, you, I mean, 15 years in law enforcement is a, is a good likelihood you saw a lot more there than in combat, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of despair in this world and you don't, it, it, it you see more of it in law enforcement because you're getting called to it, right? If a normal civilian walking down the street, you don't see very much going on. Nothing probably happens in your neighborhood, but police are constantly going to it. Rapes, like you said, murders, shootings, domestic violence, um, people dying, just, you know, uh, natural causes. That used to give me anxiety. Right. When I would hear uh, like a, a emergency response call of somebody having a heart attack, I would be anxious because of all that year of combat and death I saw, I would, for some reason, that would just make me anxious knowing that that guy was dying. It had nothing to do with me, but psychologically, it would give me anxiety. And these were common calls and, you know, people just expect you to be okay, like a normal okay type of person. Like, go to go see all this shit every fucking day, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, but but you're weak if you talk about uh, mental health if you're struggling with mental health right back then yeah back then 10 15 years ago you know um but now it's it's um it's a lot there's not there's not a stigma attached to it anymore a lot of people are you know hey i've got a issue and as a partner or as a friend if i were to tell you something bad because you're having a mental health issue i you know i think it's changed a lot so there's no longer that stigma or dark cloud hanging around. It's people with some kind of mental health issue. Right. Um, did you eventually uh, seek help with the, with the VA? Yeah. So um, it's funny because I actually, I, I tried to go to a VA psychologist in 2008. Um, living in Lancaster, it's kind of a rural area. LA, the city of LA, Los Angeles was, it's like a two hour, three hour drive. So they kept saying, hey, we can, we can only set you up with a video appointment. So I would be talking to some psychiatrist, psychologist through a video monitor. And I was like, I'm not doing that. That's dumb. So I never sought any help for that. I would just go for regular checkups. Um, but uh, fast forward to 2010 or 11 after that shooting, that's when I actually sought help through the VA. Because I had moved out of Lancaster into a, a, another city. is about an hour away. So I was closer to L.A. More, re more VA resources out that way. So that's when I actually started getting help through okay. the VA. And uh, have you been diagnosed with anything? Um, so I went through the whole process of um, the disability pension, right? You got to go through the whole process, uh, get interviewed. And originally I was given 50% uh, for PTSD strictly. Right. Everything else I claim got denied, right? right as usual. Right. But they said, hey, yeah, I mean, you, we're going to give you 50% 50 PTSD. So um, that's, make, how, that's how it started. They make, you, uh, 
it seems as they make you work uh, hard uh, to get to get you where maybe you should be, right? To get because uh, you're more than fifty percent now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it actually took me three years to get fifty percent. <laughs> and did so? Tell me this: Did anything change from when you got fifty percent, and then within those three years of you getting uh, bumped up? Um, because I ask this because a lot of the times you're submitting the same evidence over and over and then the VA just rates you higher and you didn't really submit anything different. It's like, you know, I, and I've heard this from many veterans about, it's like, they're almost like, uh, it's almost like they just want you to give up (laughs) and quit. Yeah. Uh, they definitely don't make it easy. Um, you know, I, I don't know if people, try to skirt the system or whatever the reasoning behind it is. But, um, so I applied in 2014. I didn't get the 50% till 2017. And, um, I just went back in 2019 to get reevaluated and they upped me to 70% now. Right. Um, and I, and I guess in the, in the VA's defense, um, they're overwhelmed. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of military veterans out there, and for the past, uh, you know, decade, yeah, couple twenty of years, deca- couple <laughs> decades, there's, you yep. know, we've been at war, right? So yeah. there's a lot of, you know, combat veterans roaming around, you know, roaming around, uh, and a lot of them, you know, are don't know how to get help, are afraid to get help, and get, you know, perceived as being weak. Yeah, that's it, one hundred percent. It's that stigma that floats around being weak. Um, but if you think about it, what was the last major conflict? Desert Storm, right? From right. 2001, from 1990, 91 to 2001. So then 2001 to now, the VA gets flooded with, what, 300,000 people that were in combat that have issues? Yeah. Or in country, not specifically in combat, but still, you know? Yeah, I think so, it, it might even be a lot more. I, I, I think sure. I read an article recently, they were like, backed up with 500,000 claims or I believe it. I, and I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't dig into the, you know, I'm just, I'm just spitting shit out of my mouth, but I, I want to say I read something like that. But, um, the fact is, is that they're overwhelmed and they, there needs to be a lot of help. Uh, yeah. When you're going through it, you're just irritated because you don't, you don't really think about all the other people that are doing the claims. You're just focused on you, unfortunately, but in hindsight, you know, they're <laughs> overwhelmed. Yeah. Was, a, was a good analogy. So, uh, what do you do? What do you do to uh, to manage everything that you've been through, Paul? Um, you know, walk me through. You know, what you do to help yourself uh, manage all these, uh, you know, these these emotions and things that you feel after having been through everything you've been through. Uh, the only thing that's ever really helped me was exercise, <laughs> and, and running for specifically running. Um, for some people, it gives them runner's high or relieve anxiety, stress, and that's what it did for me. But it was a temporary fix. I would go back to thinking the same thoughts or you know, just a depressed atmosphere, and the anxiety would come back. So there was, there was no real fix. It was just temporary uh, things I would do to, t- to try to take my mind off everything that I've been through. It's constantly having to be managed. Non-stop, 24-7, seven days a week. Uh, do you know anybody, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, there's a lot of veterans that end up committing suicide after coming back from 
war. Um, do you know anyone personally that has taken their lives due to that? Um, no, you know, it's, it's crazy. Cause I, when you first get out, you keep in touch with a lot of the guys you were with, but as time goes on, everybody kind of goes their own separate ways. And, uh, other than the guys that we know, um, the only other guy that I talked to is it, it was my bunk mate in boot camp. <laughs> still kept in contact with them to this day. Right. Right. But yeah, as far as anybody committing suicide, I personally didn't know. I haven't, I didn't know anybody. What type of advice would you give a Marine that's maybe struggling, maybe a younger Marine that's struggling with, uh, you know, having been back from combat, is afraid to talk to anybody, um, you know, and needs help? Uh, you know, what would you say to them? Uh, mental health has come a long way from when, from 20 years ago. Um, I think they understand everything a lot better now because of so many cases of veterans. So I would tell them, it doesn't matter what you tell a psychologist or psychiatrist. I always used to think I'm going to go in there and they're going to lock me up in some crazy house because I told them I had, you know, nightmares of people dying. But it, it, once you talk to them and actually understand their job is to try to evaluate you and help you, um, that stigma in my mind kind of went away. And, you know, they're not there to put you in some nut house like everybody thinks. It's not going to affect your job. It's not going to affect anything. You know, your family life is not going to affect your income. It's literally just something that's going to help you. Right on. Um, any last words before we cut the tape? No. Hey, thanks for telling your story, brother. Appreciate you. All right, man. Thank you. Push it to the limit, I can't go no more. Red light, no way I'm coming back home. Long dirt 